If you brought your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are continuing in our sermon series called Good News for the Not So Good. That's me and you. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul, even in chapter 1, under divine inspiration, writing to the church in Corinth, called them holy or sanctified saints. And honestly, they were anything but saints. And that tells me there's good news for us today as well, because we are all a work in progress. God's working in our lives. And so here we come to the last part of this chapter. I want to preach a message. This is the third in the series. If you missed parts one and two, they are recorded online. But today, the message title is The Message of the Cross. And that's not original with me because it's verse 18, all right? So that's for creativity this morning. Uh, Verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Say with me, power. It is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In other words, what I do to the world is foolishness. When I preach the gospel, the world sees uh, preachers and the gospel message as foolishness, foolishness, but God uses that to save those who will believe. Uh, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness, I love this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. I mean, man thinks he got it all figured out, and he has nothing figured out. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you, were, what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is a powerful passage there, and I love it. I love the gospel. I love preaching on the cross. Basically what we have here in the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
is that Paul wished to turn the mind of his readers to the source, really, of our union, to the source of our unity, and that is simply the cross. You recall from two weeks ago, the church at Corinth was divided. And so practically what Paul is doing here is, is, is saying to them, practically every problem the church at Corinth faced could find its answer in the cross. May I also suggest that every problem you and I face can find its answer in the cross, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how could a cross be of any value? You know, Paul spoke in irony here. The preaching of the cross seemed foolish merely because the message is simple and the listeners tend to be blind and proud and at times mocking. Those who are perishing, those who are being brought to nothing, who are being destroyed, stubbornly take their own way and consider the cross foolishness. But it is this choice and consideration that is also causing them to perish. In other words, they're mocking their only hope. And the fact of their perishing proves the fallacy of their thinking. But Paul also writes to another group, to those who are being saved, those who are being rescued, preserved from harm. The cross then for those is the very expression of God's power, of God's grace in action. Notice what Paul, Paul writes here, you know, to us who are being saved. He included himself as an heir of salvation. And he's not glorying in himself, but he's glorying in the cross. I mean, Paul, you'll recall, had experienced firsthand the power of the cross when, when he was transformed from a, a Jesus people persecutor to being a Jesus lover, all right? And the cross, though, the cross, by the cross, we see the wonder of God's redemption. By the cross, we are united with Christ. By the cross, we should be united with brothers and sisters in Christ. By the cross, we are cleansed. By the cross, we are purified. By the cross, we are kept unto salvation. So the answer for the church at Corinth and the answer for you and I today in what we face still is the message of the cross. Now let's shift gears a little bit. Maybe from your childhood you remember this kind of a scene. You've seen the commercials on TV. You knew that this would be the best toy ever. And so you asked for it by name, just like the announcer on the commercial told you to do. You, you were well behaved for the whole month of December, just not to jinx anything. And then Christmas Day finally arrives, and you take your gift out of the box because that's what your parents got you. And it's only moments later that you realize, you know, this toy is nothing like what they showed on TV. How many have ever had that happen? All right. I have personally experienced this particular trauma. I'm thinking specifically of the electric football game, the vibrating grid game. Go ahead and put that up. If you will, it's up there. And I remember I first played this game in Sioux City, Iowa with my cousins Randy and Jody when they got it. And after spending several minutes setting up the players in position, you flip the switch and the game goes zzzz. And half the players spin around in place and the other half go to the sidelines. How many have had that experience? And how many after playing that game said, I just got ripped? All right. <laughs> Come to think of it, it's, it's exactly like watching the Arizona Cardinals play football last year. 
I did not watch one game, but I watched the news things on them. So anyway, I guess those types of toys serve one very useful purpose for kids. And that is they give them the important first lesson that sometimes the packaging is better than the product and sometimes the ads promise more than they can deliver. All right. We learn this lesson again and again all throughout our lives. Maybe you've taken a vacation to an exotic location based on some brochure you picked up and you went to the destination and you're thinking, this is nothing like the brochure, you know. Uh, but but uh, anyway, uh, time things happen where sometimes things aren't quite what they appear to be on the surface. Well, the same could be said about the wisdom of the world. We live in a culture today that is always telling us this is right, this is good, this is true, this will make you happy. And a lot of times this is not right, this is not good, this is not true, and this won't make you happy. But on a closer inspection, we would have to say that what the world promises or what the world delivers are two very different things. Well, as you know, today we're continuing in our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And the first verse of this morning's text, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, for the message of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, he says, to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now, the Bible teaches us that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. All right, it's what we call progressive sanctification. I talked about that in week one, so I won't belabor that too much here. But what is the message of the cross? The message of the cross is simple. It's that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. Jesus died in our place. And by his death, he did what we could never do on our own. He purchased the pardon and paid the price for the wrong, for the sin we have done. And every person on planet Earth has sinned against God and against others. There is not one person in this place today, myself included, who has not sinned against Almighty God, who doesn't have a sin problem that can only be resolved in the message of the cross. In other words, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owe a debt we couldn't pay. And therefore, our right standing with God is never based on our own goodness, on our own merit, or, 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 or what we've done, our good works. It is simply based on him, on his mercy, on his grace. Now, for those who have not yet come to Christ, the message of the cross can be quite the obstacle because it requires on our part repentance and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have to humble ourselves in order to find his grace. A lot of people in the world today, though, don't want to do that. It requires on our part an admission of guilt, a confession of sin, a surrendered heart, a surrendered will, and, and yet today we live in this culture where people tend to think they've done no wrong. Plus, today, as well as every day, people don't want to be told how to live when it comes to the Bible. All right? Years ago, Ted Turner 
publicly mocked his Christian employees for wearing ashes on their forehead on Ash Wednesday. In an interview with the Dallas Morning News, he said, Christianity is a religion for losers and that he doesn't need anyone to die for his sins. Sir, if that's the way you feel, you will die in your sins and you will spend eternity in hell. Period. Now, the message of sin and redemption is an obstacle to those who are outside the faith. And guess what? The message can also be an obstacle to those inside the faith as well. Here's what I'm saying. We're we're as tempted as anyone to listen to the wisdom of the world. You know, if you're in the process of being saved, if you want to thrive in your journey towards sanctification, you must embrace really every day of your life the message of the cross, which means that we must, with intention, every day of our lives, choose whose ideas we'll believe and whose wisdom we'll follow. And I can guarantee you, if you choose to follow the ideas and the wisdom of this world, it will leave you behind. There are so many competing ideas in the marketplace. And so how do we know what to believe? How do we distinguish the world's wisdom from God's wisdom. Well, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 8, 32. You shall know the truth. One of the things I learned in experiencing God that class years ago, and I've taught it several times and I've taken it and, and taught it many, many different times, but one of the concepts, one of the things it teaches is that truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. And you could really read that, you shall know Jesus, and Jesus will set you free. All right. You see, the Christian faith is built on truth, definable, uh, defendable, objective truth. Therefore, the Christian position is never, well, this may be confusing, but just accept it and don't ask questions. No. Some religious leaders have tried to say that, and they inevitably have led their followers in the direction of error. So when it comes to truth, honestly, the body of Christ, and this is true today more than ever before, the body of Christ must be hardliners. In other words, we must not deviate from what God's Word says. We should be quick to say, well, show, show, me, you know, show me the money, prove it, back up your words with something I can see. Well, as believers, we should take a no-nonsense approach to truth. And so with that in mind, I want to today share with you three obstacles to truthful thinking that we must face head-on and overcome. And here's the first area. Number one, when it comes to truth, let's not confuse popular opinion with biblical truth. Paul said the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, why is that? Well, the Jewish people believed the Messiah would be a powerful and dynamic leader, a leader who would usher in a triumphant age of peace, of prosperity. The idea that he would be crucified was beyond their ability to imagine. And many missed the day of his visitation. Uh, In their view, cursed is anyone who hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23, as well as Galatians 3, 13. So how could, to their mindset, how could God's chosen one die the death of a man who is cursed? 
Now, of course, there are many Old Testament prophecies that indicate that this very thing would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, but these prophecies were often selectively overlooked even by scholars back then. That's just what we have a tendency to do today. We were selective in the ideas that influence us. For example, for, 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 well, I'll just say it this way. For the most part, the Western church loves the verses in the Bible on God's prosperity. Does God prosper his people? Yes, he does read the Bible. But we, man, we, we underline, we highlight, we love those verses on the blessing of God. And, and yet, uh, the passages that promise suffering or persecution don't get underlined nearly as often, do they? You know what I'm saying? Now, if we want to build our lives on God's gospel truth, then we need to consider the entire counsel of Scripture, not just the sections that are most convenient to us. I'm not going to take time this morning, but I would, I would suggest to you to look up this week, and if you're writing down notes, A.W. Tozer's article on the Old Cross versus the New Cross. A.W. Tozer's article on the Old Cross versus the New Cross. Basically, he is saying the New Cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. In other words, the message has been watered down today, unlike yesteryear when people preached the cross, preached repentance, and, and preached that we must get right with God, etc., and read the whole article, I don't have time for it this morning. But think about it this way. When Jesus, when Jesus would call people to be his follower, he said to them, this is Luke 9, verse 23, if any man will come after me, he, uh, let him, he says, deny himself and take up his cross, Luke says, daily and follow me. So three Three qualifiers are, number one, you must deny yourself if you're going to be a follower of Christ. And Scripture makes it very clear, there is no salvation apart from biblical repentance. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, Jesus says, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, I figured if Jesus Christ, the one who died in my place, came on the scene preaching repentance, surely preachers today should be preaching repentance. It should be noted as well that a person cannot repent unless there is some knowledge of actual guilt. Now, a person cannot and will not follow Christ until he or she has renounced their allegiance to self. He must deny himself. Now, as long as self is ruling and reigning in your heart, as long as you are primarily devoted to yourself, your will, you will repeatedly prove yourself to be a traitor of Christ's kingdom. Because the very first qualifier is you must deny yourself. In short, the desire to see oneself favorably is what keeps people from experiencing the kind of true repentance that brings forth a transformed life and a transformed character. Now, the reason unconverted churchgoers can sidestep the truth about themselves 
is that the human heart is an inveterate liar. It is the heart is deceitful, the Bible says, above all things. George Bowen said this, The faith that does not hearken unto Christ, that hearkens rather to one's own heart, is a mere phantom faith. It is the demon of unbelief under the angelic mask of faith. Wow. So when Jesus tells his followers they must deny themselves, he is saying they must give up the false notion that they deserve salvation. Friends, the only thing you and I deserve is an eternity in hell itself, where the worm is not, never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's what we deserve. That's what I deserve. And so we have to simply point a finger at self and say, I'm guilty, all right? I deserve death. I deserve the death penalty in that sense. You must deny self. Secondly, you must take up your cross daily. Not only must there be an initial renunciation of self, but there must be an ongoing rejection of of our, of our, our selfish claims upon our own lives, of, of why we want to live our lives the way we do. Now, I think herein lies the essential difference between true and false converts. The reason many Christians cringe today when they're asked to sacrifice for the sake of others is that nothing has happened within them to compel them to get outside of themselves. Wow, it's true. In other words, they see carrying the cross as an uninvited intrusion upon their lives. You see, in their heart of hearts, their true devotion is reserved for the world system that caters then to the flesh. And so the fundamental difference really between true and false believer lies in the question of loyalty. Are you loyal to Christ or are you loyal to yourself? So when it comes right down to it, you're gonna, if you're going to look out for number one, uh, your primary loyalties won't be to Christ. Will you do your own will? Will you do the will of God? Will you love self or will you love the Lord? So being born again means the person is converted from a self-centered existence to one which is becoming increasingly Christ-centered. The longer you and I are saved, the more like Jesus we should become. Romans 8, 29, that's the goal. And so the message of the cross is diametrically opposed to the loyalty of self. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and then thirdly, you must follow him. Now, how do you know if you're following Jesus? Is he leading you? Is he leading you? You simply follow the one who's leading you, all right? The entire life of Christ, you'll recall, was aimed in one direction, and that is the cross. And Paul fully understood this. Paul understood this, and that's why he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power, the power to change, the power to live for him, the power to, to do what he asks us to do. And so those who embrace the message of the cross are in the process of being saved, and those who reject the cross are in the process of eternal damnation. Now, here's what I'm saying. We cannot be what I will call 
We cannot be buffet believers or what we call cafeteria Christians where we go into a line and there's a smorgasbord of things to choose from and we say, well, I like that and I like that and I like that. Now, when I go to a smorgasbord and it's not that often because I eat too much. Want to get my money's worth. But I go for the meat because I can have salad whenever. Right? If you're going to fill up on salad, God bless you, fill up on salad. I prefer to fill up on the animal that eats the salad. <laughs> anyway, I'm just simply saying, when you pick and choose your facts, or in today's language, we hear this phrase, well, my truth says, you ain't got no truth. All right? but we ignore the rest, we can talk ourselves into believing almost anything. And it might be a nice idea uh, to some that the Messiah will be a military leader. That's what they expected. But when you read the scriptures thoroughly and not selectively, you understand there's more to God's plan of, of salvation. You understand why the Messiah had to die the way he died. You understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. So when I say, let's not so easily be misled, I'm saying instead, let's remain, church, undeterred in our pursuit of biblical truth, even when it goes against the grain of our current culture. Now, what I'm about to say, if you get nothing out of the message this morning, please remember this. Biblical truth will go against the grain of our culture. Let me say it again. Let it sink in. Biblical truth will go against the grain of our culture. Let me give you a few examples this morning. Don't want to belabor these, but you know where I'm coming from. For example, biblical truth tells me there are two genders. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27 I don't care if the world says there are 80-some genders today and, and we must be gender neutral, gender fluid, or whatever. There are two genders according to God's Word. I will not deviate from that. I might be put in jail in my lifetime for saying that. That's where the people, that's where the culture is going. All right? Uh, another biblical truth and scientific truth, men can't get pregnant. Men can't have babies. I don't, I, don't care how much, uh, I don't care how much facial hair you have on you, sir. Men can't get pregnant. Another biblical truth I will stand on all my life. Marriage is between a man and a woman, period. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I don't care what the U.S. government has said. I don't care what almost every media outlet has said. I don't care what our current president or vice president has said. Biblically, marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, you know where this gets tough for us? When we have family members that believe differently or live differently. And so we're, we're trying to make excuse, well, maybe God does allow homosexual unions, and maybe God, 
Friends, we're going to have to make up our mind in the day we're living in. Are we going to stand on God's word or are we going to believe every lie from the pit of hell that comes from our culture today? I'm serious. I'm serious. That's what it's coming down to. That's what it's coming down to. Another biblical truth, abortion is murder. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Exodus 23, verse 7, Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, declares the hands that shed innocent blood are among seven things that God hates. You see, God hates violence and the taking of human life, especially innocent life. It's an affront to God because God is the giver of life and made man in his, in his image and in his likeness. See, what God desires, honestly, is a culture that honors and protects human life. A culture that says, you know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. A culture that says, God knew me while I was in my mother's womb. God knows if I'm to be a boy or a girl. It's pretty simple. I accept what God's created me to be. It's pretty simple. You see, biblical truth, I'm simply saying, will go against the grain of our culture. In other words, church, don't expect to be accepted and embraced by the very people who reject God and reject His Word. Wisdom calls us to trust Him. And so when it comes to truth, number one, let's not confuse popular opinion with biblical truth. You better stand for biblical truth. Number two, let's not confuse campaign promises with genuine accomplishments. Paul said in verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs. Man, they wanted proof. They wanted confirmation, which is understandable. And so they tended to follow those who promised signs and wonders. Do you realize if you're a person who is chasing after signs and wonders that you'll be deceived if you're around for the end times? Because according to the Bible, we've been studying this on Wednesday evenings, according, according to the Bible in the tribulation period, the devil's going to be given power by God to do false miracles, false signs. We read about it. In AD, or 54 AD, a charismatic leader who is simply known as the Egyptian built quite a following, convincing everyone he was a great prophet. He led a large group into the wilderness and told them that by his spoken word, the walls of Jerusalem would fall. Well, according to Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, 30,000 men brought, bought into his message. They left their families behind. They escaped to the middle of nowhere because, this, because of this guarantee of a miraculous sign was just simply too much to resist. Of course, his guarantee came to nothing. It was basically a campaign promise that, never, that he never delivered on. Instead, many of his followers were captured and killed, and he himself went into hiding. But that's the kind of prophet that many were looking for in those days. And not just in those days, in our days as well. We tend to find proof in matters that in reality prove nothing. When the Jewish leaders asked Jesus for a sign to prove his authority, Jesus said, destroy this temple. 
and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, they thought he meant Herod's temple, but he was referring to his death and his resurrection. Do you want proof about the Christian faith? Well, here it is. Jesus Christ came into the world. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died a criminal's death on a cruel Roman cross. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. That's biblical proof. Now, why do we believe that? Why do we believe that he truly was raised from the dead? Well, for, I didn't mention this on Easter Sunday, but look at his followers. You know, before and after the resurrection. Notice how his followers even changed. I mean, they had been cowards before, hiding from fear from the Roman authorities, thinking, well, if they, if they crucified him, we're probably next. And after they encountered the risen Christ, though, they suddenly experienced a radical transformation. And that transformation was to the point of being, being willing to face prison, excuse me, and torture and even death for their belief in Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you see a dead man come back to life, all right? And nothing's going to change your mind. See, here's what I'm saying. Rather than basing your ideas of truth on shallow appearances and surface-level indicators, look for the real evidence of truth. Look for transformation. I've said for years now, and it bears repeating, but the greatest proof of the power of God is a changed life. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Amen. Proof. Thirdly, when it comes to truth, let's not confuse entertainment with real-life wisdom. I mentioned a minute ago that a polished presentation is not proof that the message is true. But there are many who, if they're honest, would have to admit that's exactly what they believe. I mean, in other words, say it in a convincing way, and I'll buy into it. It was no different, honestly, in the Greek culture of New Testament times. Two weeks ago, I had mentioned the sophists, the, the traveling philosophers. They preached in the marketplace. They attracted huge crowds. These word wizards were so skilled in persuasion that they could easily make the worst idea look like the best idea, and they could make bad appear to be good. It was kind of like a game to them, honestly. And William Barclay in his commentary said, that the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. Then they loved rhetoric. To them, the Christian message, as well as the messenger, was crude, was uncultured. But hey, if you'll listen to us, we'll tell you what's right, you know. Well, today we're not much different. We live in a culture that says, in effect, just make me laugh and I'll believe anything you say. That's why a study was done during the last presidential campaign of a couple years ago and showed that 21% of those aged 20 to 29 cited as their primary news source the Daily Show on Comedy Central and Saturday Night Live. Really? In other words, if all it takes is a punchline to change someone's mind, then they are an accident waiting to happen. But today we face a unique challenge. Today we have all kinds of news outlets. They're available 
24-7. If there was any reason to watch Fox News with Tucker Carlson being let go, then that just kind of took it away from me. I actually recorded him his last week, did not know it would be his last week because I wanted to find out what uh, um, Elon Musk had to say regarding AI. And I listened to both the interviews and they were good actually. But uh, also praying for him because he doesn't know if he has a soul or not. And so it's like, okay, that was revealing. So, buddy, I'm praying for you. You need to know. You need to know Jesus Christ, all right? Uh, but, but seriously, today's news is a product of the marketplace. And you can turn to whatever channel you want, and they will give you the slant of news you want to hear, all right? They will tickle your ears. In such a context, the message just might get compromised from time to time, and we need to, to be not quite so easily convinced by what we hear. Before he passed away, and I'm taking this to heart, Rush Limbaugh said, if you want to live your life, turn off the news and live your life. Don't be controlled because they are telling you what they want you to hear, period. Well, I'm not just pointing fingers at the media this morning. The same thing can happen when churches become more focused on success than on ministry. You see, in our quest for truth, in our quest for wisdom, church, let's not confuse the packaging for the product. Let's not confuse the advertisement for the reality. Let's not confuse entertainment for real-life wisdom. And there's a big difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. We just read that. Do you know what the difference comes down to? One word, and it's the word power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. William Barclay also said, the gospel was and is power. Power to conquer self, power to master circumstances, power to go on living when life is unlivable, power to be a Christian when being a Christian looks impossible. The gospel is a message of power. Friends, if you allow God to do so, God will radically change your life. It's the power of God. Jesus says the truth will set you free. You'll be set free from your past, from your present, from your future, from yourself, from your sinful nature. It's all part of that transformation that takes place because the way of the truth has a way of transforming those who simply embrace it. So let's take our truth with a side of proof. All right? Let's take a deeper look into what we hear before we make up our minds. Truth has a way of changing those who embrace it. And guess what? God's truth itself never changes. But if you let it, it will change you from the inside out. Let me wrap this up. I, I, I did about what I'm going to share with you. I got from, actually from some fellow Christians I saw on their Facebook posts around Easter time, I've adapted it. You can go and look this up. But as I share it, it's not original with Brian, but Brian's changed it a little bit to fit the context of this. But what got my attention was it started out with 1 Corinthians 1.18, our text for this morning. And it says, while most people would agree that our world is broken, they may not agree on how to fix it. 
I believe the unique experience of the thief on the cross is a reminder of the only solution for that brokenness, and that is found in the execution of an innocent man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, without the preaching of the cross, without the preaching of the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground to our salvation. So that, to go to one of the diagnostic questions from Evangelism Explosion by Dr. James Kennedy. I took the class, I become a trainer in the class. And there was two questions that they taught you to memorize. One of them was this. If you were to die tonight and you were standing before God before your entrance into heaven and God were to ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would you say? And then the article goes on. If you say, if you answer that, and if I answer that in the first person, we've immediately got that wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Friends, the only proper answer is in the third person. If God were to ask us that question, because I has nothing to do with it. It needs to be in the third person because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross for a moment. What an immense but very brief interchange that took place that day as they all hung on their crosses. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how'd that all shake out for you? I mean, here you were, your friend was cursing the guy out, speaking of Christ, You'd never been to a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. Matter of fact, sir, uh, sir, you never gave a dime to the church or the building program or to missions. You haven't memorized the doctrine of sanctification and holiness, and yet, and yet you've made it. You've made it. Here you are. You've made it. How'd you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, sir, what are you doing here? And the guy says, well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Because I don't know, the thief on the cross said. And the angel says, well, you know, excuse me. Let me get my supervisor angel. And they go get the supervising angel. And the supervisor angel says, uh, sir, we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy says, I've never heard of that. Well, let's then go to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Do you know about that? And the guy's just staring. And what about the doctrine of the Trinity? You know, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit? The guy says, never heard of that either. Well, then what are your eschatology beliefs? My esca what? <laughs> eschatology end time events. Uh, sir, do you know the 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God? You know, the scriptures inspired the one true God. You go on down the baptism of the Holy Spirit, initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues, and, and it goes on. And the guy says, to be honest, I've never heard of one of those. And eventually, in frustration, the supervisor angel says, well then, on what basis are you here? And the man said, the man on the middle cross, 
said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Church, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust in myself, trust in my experience, which is part of the fallenness of a, as a man. See, if I take my eyes off the cross, I can then only give lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends on me and what I've done. See, as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or to a horrible kind of arrogance. It is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out. I'm doing wonderfully well. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're lying to yourself. There's a hymn called Before the Throne of God Above, and the fourth verse says this, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him, to look on Him and pardon me. That's why Martin Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you. In this sense, that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not, we're not saved as a result of our professions. But we are saved and only saved as a result of what Jesus did. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. The man, the man in the middle, he's the one that told me I could come. That's it. That's all. Don't add to it. My closing questions for us this morning. Very simple. As you sit here, have you, are you, embracing the cross, the message of the cross today? Are the things you're living for worth Jesus dying for? Have you and are you denying yourself? Have you embraced his cross? Have you died to your will? Are you following him daily, Luke says. Let's all stand to our feet. Hope you got something out of this this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for the cross. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to deny ourselves daily taking up our cross, daily following you. Following you. Lord, help us not to be 
selective in reading your word, but to read the entirety of it and say, God, please change me, transform me in your name. Just holding steady for a moment. If you come today and do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never embraced his cross, you've never repented of your sin, then today is your day of salvation. A time to get right before God. This might be the very last altar call you ever hear. And so, I don't care if you close your eyes or not, if you bow your heads or not, if you need repentance, if you need forgiveness of sin, if you need Jesus Christ in your life, right where you're at, put your hand up high, not embarrassed of him, just saying, God, I need grace in my life. I need forgiveness in my life. My heart's not right with you, but today I'm embracing the cross. I'm denying myself. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm getting right with you. If that describes where you're at right now, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up high and say, Pastor Brian, pray with me today. My heart's not right with God. There's sin in my life. That sin has separated me from God. And I'm calling you to repentance as Jesus called those that would become his followers to repentance. Just holding steady for a moment. I need Christ in my life. I want to become his follower. Father, today, we commit your word to our hearts, knowing that it's not going to return to your void. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. And Lord, help us every day to embrace the message of the cross. Because the man in the middle said, I could come. It's the power of God to those who believe. Bless now your word to the hearers in this place today in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. I just want to invite you. Wednesday night is our study on Revelation. This Wednesday, Revelation chapter 21. God bless you all. Have a great week in the Lord. God bless you.